Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. My interests are medicine, hematology, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. This week, we got a great episode in store for you. We've got an interview, and I think you're going to really like this. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, check out the new website, www.plenarysessionpodcast.com. We've got show notes. We've got trial summaries. We've got everything you could want on the website. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Write a review for us on the iTunes store. And become a supporter for this podcast on Patreon. Patreon backers get access to the slides for presentations I give on Plenary Session. You also get a few bonus lectures. And with that, let's start the show. I'm back in Plenary Session. I'm joined via Zoom by Dr. Carl Hart. Carl Hart is a legend. He needs no introduction, but he's an American neuroscientist. He works on the faculty at Columbia University. He's the author of a, of a new book about drug use for grownups. Dr. Hart, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for having me, man. I'm happy to be here. Ah, oh, no, it's my pleasure. Uh, somebody who listens to my podcast plenary session said that I ought to get Carl Hart on the podcast. And I said, what a reach. It would be a reach for us to get him. But you saw the tweet, you responded. And so here we are. So thank you so much for doing this. Um, yeah. Let's talk about this. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by your, your work on um, the neuroscience uh, of drug use. I've had a lot of questions that have been that I've been wondering about for a long time, but I wonder if I might just start by asking you, um, you know, when did you first start getting interested in in this question about how human beings interact with recreational drug use? Uh, I guess uh, seriously, uh, maybe thirty years ago, uh, early nineteen nineties, nineteen ninety, uh, I started studying. Uh, the effects of morphine and nicotine um, on neurons in a uh, rat nucleus accumbens. Um, and so that's where I really started my interest. Mm -hmm. And um, over the years, it's evolved. Um, I guess, I mean, why don't we talk about, you know, I think one of the, one of, one of the, the, the key takeaway points, I guess, is, um, you know, you, you argue, I, I think rather persuasively, uh, that simply because people use drugs, even if that use is to feel the pleasure of drugs, uh, it's not necessarily bad for them. Um, I wonder if you might flesh that out a little bit. So in your mind, you know, what do you consider uh, appropriate, acceptable, tolerable, reasonable use? And, and, and is there a line that it crosses beyond which you think this is a problematic use of the, of the substance? Yeah, if we can think about alcohol, many individuals in our society have a lot of experience with alcohol. We can think about people who uh, we're in academe. We can think about receptions that we go to. And there are a number of people who drink alcohol. It makes them more social. Uh, sometimes it makes them better people. That's that's a joke. Uh, it's hard to make them better people. But, uh, <laughs> but we can we understand we have some experience with that because we also know that there are people who get in trouble with alcohol. They cross the line. They uh, may be belligerent. They may not meet their obligations as a result of drinking alcohol too much. The same can be true, and the same is true with cocaine, MDMA, with heroin. Although uh, we don't think the same is true because our de depiction of the users of a drug like cocaine or heroin are always those individuals who are having problems. And those people definitely exist. 
my point is, is that we have disproportionately focused on those individuals when we talk about um, drugs like heroin. And, um, you know, you made a joke. Your joke was that some people are better when they drink alcohol. Um, and, uh, uh, it, it, and, 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 you know, it's a joke, but it's also, I mean, I wish to push you on that. Is it, isn't it to some degree true? Uh, like it is the case that for some people, uh, the modest consumption of alcohol makes them a better version of themselves. Um, similarly, uh, although I'm a cancer physician, I, I advocate only and always not to smoke uh, tobacco products uh, because of their impact on lung cancer. At the same time, I am a physician. I cannot help but ignore the fact that for some types of psychiatric conditions, um, patients derive substantial uh, benefit, uh, normalcy from the use of tobacco products. Uh, so to some degree, drugs, um, even drugs that we think of as negative, um, do make us a better version of ourselves. Would you, would you push that? Would you argue that? No, I, absolutely. There's a reason that uh, humans have always taken drugs since they have inhabited, inhabited the earth. Uh, drugs, uh, Enhance, can enhance certain activities. They can enhance your sociability. Uh, in some cases, they can make you more empathetic. In some cases, they can make you more magnanimous, forgiving, uh, open, all of these kinds of things. Uh, certainly, that can be true. We can think about uh, the couple that takes MDMA to reconnect, uh, all of these sorts of things. Uh, uh, as we talked about the tobacco products, we're really talking about like nicotine in, in this case, uh, particularly with psychiatric patients who are on maybe anti-psychotic medications uh, where, which block dopamine transmission. Uh, nicotine uh, can sometimes give relief for the effects that we might see as a result of blocking dopamine transmission too much. Uh, so we can see how uh, drugs uh, have been a part of human history and how we use drugs in order to accomplish some of the tasks that humans seek to accomplish. You know, as a researcher, would you say that um, if, if a community has a strong negative perception about a drug product, then the research agenda itself will be unwilling to investigate potential upsides of that drug product. And so it may be to some degree a self-fulfilling prophecy that if you think heroin use is problematic, only quote unquote bad people, people on the down and outs do it, um, you may be less likely to even do studies that might uh, challenge your preconceived notion. Uh, has that been a theme in, in, in this space? Absolutely. I write about that in the new book. That's one of the sort of major uh, themes in a new book. Uh, NIDA, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, uh, is the major funder in this area. And uh, until recently, their mission was to bring to bear the nation's resources on the problems of drug abuse and drug addiction. Uh, that's a very narrow focus for something like drugs when most of the effects produced by these drugs fall outside of that narrow scope. Uh, if that's the case, that means that you are not uh, providing a comprehensive understanding of these drugs. And uh, I lament that fact in a book, and I talk about why it's wrong and how we are getting the short end of the stick as a society as a result of this disproportionately negative uh, or, or focus on these negative effects. You know, Dr. Hart, one of the things that I was thinking about through, throughout the course of this pandemic, which has, uh, you know, obviously you and I are doing this by Zoom, we're separated physically. And so many of us, um, our day-to-day -day human interactions are fundamentally different. We've been deprived of human contact. Um, even though we may have some contact, it's not like it used to be. 
I was thinking, um, you know, in my life, I've had dinner with lots of people. And I know that some people eat more food than other people. Some people drink more wine than other people. Similarly, some people, I believe, crave human company more than other people crave it or need it. Um, some people may crave um, the use of drugs more than other people. I wonder if, um, to some degree, when we moralize about, we moralize during the pandemic, we say, you know, you've had dinner with a friend clandestinely, you're a bad person, you're breaking the rules, but my need to have that outlet might be different than your need. And similarly, you have take, partaken in some uh, uh, drug, um, but your need for that may be different than my need. I wonder if you might talk about or how you think about that question. Um, uh, as I think about the pandemic, uh, it's a very sad situation because, uh, you know, I, my mom is in her 80s and other people, their life is uh, just flying past them as we are all locked down. And my mom is one of these social butterflies and she has that need to interact with people. Uh, and so when I think about people chastising others for, I don't know, not obeying the rules, I think about, well, when I think about it from my mom's perspective, um, her time may be shorter than your time. So she doesn't have the same perspective as you. Maybe you need, we need to perspective take, uh, put ourselves in other people's shoes. And so uh, that's what I try to do uh, with the pandemic, as well as with drug use or any other behavior. I try to put myself in other people's shoes before judging. Um, and that's one of the things I try to ask people to do with the book. Uh, if you're able to do that, then maybe we will be better people. That's a, that's a, you know, a terrific answer. And I think that's the right answer. And, you know, I, I was always brought up that that is the, the liberal answer. That's the progressive answer is the answer you've espoused. The pandemic put some of those things on its head for me because I observed my fellow liberals being some of the most judgy uh, in this space. And it, it gave me a great pause. Um, I wonder if you might talk a little bit about the issue of the use of substance and race. Um, how have these, I mean, obviously there's, there's strong, uh, uh, it, 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 how did they, how have these come to be intertwined? Um, and, and how much of our latent baggage, our in our intrinsic racism has shaped our drug policy? Yeah. The first thing that, uh, listeners need to know is that drug policy, um, uh, does not happen because of, or we are sort of restricting of drugs didn't happen because of pharmacology. We restrict drugs because of good old American racism, classism, and all the rest of those things. Mm -hmm. We can go back to the very first federal laws that banned drugs, 1914, the Harrison Act. Uh, we banned opioid-related products as well as cocaine. We banned opioid-related products because of our jealousy and our hatred of Chinese, the Chinese who had been who had come over to help build the railroads, but they brought with them the uh, the habit of smoking opium. They opened opium dens that were successful. Uh, uh, usually white men were jealous about uh, how successful these businesses were. They were jealous that uh, white women frequent these businesses. And so they passed ordinance to uh, stop 
the intermingling of the Chinese with white Americans. Um, uh, and then with cocaine, uh, we associated bad behavior and cocaine use among blacks. Uh, and we repeated this over and over in the media, things like black people are raping white women when they take cocaine. That's why we banned those drugs, not because of pharmacology. And of course, uh, the narrative, those stories around the, surrounding uh, the Chinese as well as Black people were exaggerations, they were lies. Uh, and that continued 1930s with marijuana, uh, with the Mexican-Americans and with Black people, similar sort of thing happened. So we banned marijuana. Um, and so we see our racism playing out not only in our drug policy, but also especially in our enforcement of drug policy. When you think about the people who are being arrested for drugs, they're black and brown people. Uh, and so when people don't understand uh, that history, um, they, they are not understanding how we are currently subjugating uh, specific racial minorities. It's an unusual thing in the sense, um, the way we've criminalized drug use. I mean, I think, you know, I agree with everything you said, because I think you've, you've done a nice job, um, you know, pointing to moments in history where the introduction of, of, of a drug to a group of people in this country uh, was always done by, quote, the other, by the immigrant, by, by, by somebody not part of the, the majority. And so it was easy to label that. Um, indulgence as wrong and to legislate it because it allowed you to achieve perhaps a, a racist policy goal. Um, I guess what I'm curious about is um, it's really one of the few things that you do to your own body that we go actively looking to punish you for what you do to yourself. That we don't do that for other things, you know. Um, for 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 so many things, we respect a fundamental freedom of what one can do to one's body so much so that recently, you know, just in the last ten years, we passed a, a, a law that people who are dying of a malignancy, they if a company will give them a product, you have the right to try that product. That's how much we, we, we're giving people autonomy. And yet when it comes to these substances that people derive in, immense, I believe, um, uh, at least pleasure, but perhaps even other things, um, uh, we, we, we restrict it. Um, it's, it's very unusual, would you say? Absolutely. Um, you could imagine. Um... Uh, the killers in our country, uh, diabetes and uh, heart disease and those sort of things. Uh, can you imagine we say, all right, you're going to be put in jail for putting that sugar in your body. Uh, we wouldn't do that, but we do that with drugs in large part because of our moralism, because of our uh, puritanic, puritanic, well, because of us being Puritans, I should yes. say, I, I, yeah. I'm screwing up the word. Uh, we don't want people to have uh, a good time. Uh, we don't want people to be enjoying uh, themselves. Uh, and there's something about uh, the American psyche uh, that uh, uh, gets concerned when people are enjoying themselves. That's well put. And, you know, um, but by, by, by making the reference, I think, to processed foods, you're making a really savvy point, which is that um, that's a drug that is sanctioned. In fact, even incentivized by the way we subsidize different uh, food products. Uh, we're incentivizing you to pump yourself full of high fructose corn syrup because we we changed the incentive so that it was way cheaper than sugar. And then, you know, we've paid the price, I think, in terms of obesity, diabetes, heart disease, all these maladies that ironically don't come at the same level when people use different recreational substances, which are often much safer. So would yeah. it be fair to say um, 
you know, if, if, if you were in charge of policy, this was one of the questions I'm supposed to ask you, um, would you criminalize uh, the use of, of, of drugs? Uh, would you criminalize the sale of drugs? How do you fall on these issues? Use, sale, um, production, uh, you know, which of, yeah, how do you think about that? So when, I, when you think about my sort of policy perspectives, uh, I try to, I go back to the Declaration of Independence. I, I, I know people sometimes uh, think they've understand this, uh, but we were not required to read the Declaration of Independence uh, past the age of 12. So most adults in America don't know what's actually what it actually says. It's a very short document, less uh -huh. than two pages, I believe. It's very short, uh, but it guarantees <laughs> each Americans at least three birthrights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, that means that you can live your life however you see fit, <clears throat> as long as you don't disrupt other people from doing the same. So you have the right to live how you, how you see fit. And it also says, like in the third sentence, that government should be created for the purpose of securing these rights. And when governments fail to do that, Government should be disbanded. Profound ideals that those are, uh, those are profound promises. And the guys who wrote this, Thomas Jefferson primarily, uh, of course, he was flawed. Uh, and, and I talk about this in the book, him being flawed. But the principles are outstanding. That principle is um, something that we are continuing try, uh, to, uh, to try to live up to. And so my sort of policy perspectives kind of flow from that uh, ideology. That's what it means to be an American. You have the right to live your life like, like others, and you have the responsibility to fight for other people's right. That's what it means to be an American. So when we think about drugs within that context, what we are, what we're, our responsibility is as a state is to make sure the behavior is as safe as possible. That is, we make sure that there is quality control. We make sure that the unit dose is controlled such that we don't place so much of a, uh, so large of a dose in a unit dose or in a package that you can kill yourself. You make sure you have restrictions on in terms of who can uh, purchase it. So you might have to have a competency restriction that you may have to be a certain age or you may have to pass a test to engage in this behavior like driving an automobile. So that's the role of the state. But not to ban this activity, uh, not to disrupt your sort of desire or ability to pursue happiness or your liberty as you see fit, as long as you're not bothering other people. Uh, and so I would legally regulate the drugs that people seek to take. Um, you know, legal regulation can look uh, in a variety of ways. People worry about capitalism, that is, taking advantage of the consumer. Okay, then we make sure that there is no lobby for the folks who are selling this product. Okay, we make sure that we control the advertisement of this product, no problem. But that's the role of the government. But the activity is available to the people to live their life as they see fit. 
I, I mean, I guess you're preaching to the choir because that's that's my view of what it means to have liberty. Um, and I think that everything you've proposed is a very sensible way to balance people's right to pursue um, what they wish to uh, with sensible safeguards so that you don't accidentally overdose. You know, that's what we're talking about. And the irony is when we don't do those things, you may be even more likely to have overdoses because you have an uncontrolled product on the market. So here's my well, question. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, there's some evidence that yeah. supports your, what you just said. I mean, if we think about uh, prohibition, alcohol prohibition from 1920 to 1933, we banned alcohol. Right. Uh, what we saw were tens of thousands of deaths and people being maimed from tainted alcohol substances. Now, when you got rid of alcohol prohibition, that number plummeted to almost zero. Uh, but so that supports what, what, what you just said. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. If you're buying alcohol, you might be buying methanol, you know, and uh, and and right. And, and so that's one of the things that the legal sale of alcohol. Yeah, I think prohibition. Well, well, the yeah, the go government added methanol uh, <laughs> to these products uh, in order to discourage people from drinking. So it's like, well, uh, if you drink, we're going to kill you. That's yeah. what they did. Yeah. And um uh, and, and and to some degree, that's what happens when you have illicit drugs, which can be cut with any number of products. Um I wonder if I, I want to ask you a question about your, you know, your your work in the academy. You know, you're a professor, um, and you have a point of view uh, that I believe is um, very well founded, arguable point of view. But I believe, probably for the majority of your career, you were fighting against a machine that largely disagrees with you. Um, you had a minority viewpoint. Um, I wonder if you might just. I mean, I, I don't know what it was like. I'm kind of curious. What is it like to have a minority viewpoint over the last 15, 20 years, maybe a little bit longer in, 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 in the academy? And has something changed about having minority viewpoint? And, you know, the irony of your viewpoint is as time goes on, it's more popular. Um, but my, my impression is that um, the ability for somebody to have a minority viewpoint is harder and harder as years go on. We have a more and more intolerant academy. Um, well, that's my impression, but I'm curious what your impression is, yeah. Yeah, so I, I should say first that um, this is an evolution, my sort of viewpoint. And so mm, I played the game. I wholeheartedly believe much of the nonsense that I am currently lamenting and attacking. Mm. Uh, and so um, I was on grant review for four years. I did my grant review. I was on NIDA's council, their highest board. I, I I played the game. I've done all of these things. I've gotten uh -huh. the grants. I've done that sort of thing. Uh, and then over time, I've had all of this cognitive dissonance about what we were doing. I learned that this was wrong. And now uh, this minority viewpoint, as you put it, point, uh, point it out correctly, uh, I, uh, there are people who... We're in the academy. People are cowards for the most part. <laughs> uh, That's true. Well, they don't fight yeah. in the same way we fight uh, on the street in that you just deal with the problem uh, Head straight on. up. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so uh, this current sort of wave of media that's, uh, that's been lies for the most part about me. Uh, I have like uh, been given emails and those sorts of things of uh, various faculty members of the university uh, planning um, this sort of subversive attack. And uh, so um, uh, it's very real. Uh, but the, when you look at the evidence, uh, 
with a clear head, it's hard to have any other position uh, than the one that I have. And so uh, as a scientist, as someone who's trying to be intellectually honest, it's the only position that I can take and uh, the, the chips will fall where they may. Uh, and I know that uh, the evidence will vindicate me and history certainly will vindicate me. Um, and I certainly can't live a lie in that regard. So th I have no choice. I think you know you're really hitting the nail on the head about one thing, which is um, that the, that the, the the academy is a passive aggressive place to be. That people come at you never head on. Often you don't know who they are. It's very hard. Always whispers. Um, you know the old joke goes, um, uh, "It's the nastiest kind of politics because the stakes are so low." About the academy, <laughs> and sometimes I I myself feel that. Um, yeah, I think that quote is uh, attributed to uh, Henry Kissinger. Uh, that's what uh, I, I've heard, yeah. I, I, I actually put it in the book. It's in the book and about these issues. I discuss these issues. I wonder if you might talk about another issue that you know you discuss often, which is um, the incarceration issue. You know, so it's not enough that we are punishing the use of substances; we're incarcerating people. Um, incarceration. Um, I mean, I, I think despite the, you know, apart from the human cost is the actual cost. We have to pay for incarceration. Um, and why are we incarcerating people who've done nothing harmful to other people? I, I, it blows me away. Um, how, do you, how do you think about this, this issue? Well, I think about the, this war on drugs, basically incarcerating people for what they put in their bodies, they're using drugs. Uh, if we go back and think about the 70s and 80s when the American audio industry and other factories um, were moving, they were leaving the country to, for cheaper labor. Um, that meant that people in the Rust Belt, in Ohio, in Michigan, West Virginia, and those places, they were losing jobs. Uh, they were losing middle-class jobs. Uh, and one of the things that the war on drugs did was that it was uh, a, a replacement, not an adequate replacement, but it was a replacement. So the war on drugs became this jobs program. So we hired more cops, predominantly uh, white uh, male mm -hmm. cops who were less well-educated. Uh, and uh, so those people now had some temporary relief. The problem is, is that if you're going to be hiring these cops, then they need something to do. And what they do is they arrest typically black and brown bodies. Uh, in places like Oklahoma, it doesn't matter. They're arresting poor white people. And so poor white people are also uh, losing in this case. Um, and so that jobs program, is, it, it's one of the most effective ones that we have today. Mm. That's why it continues. Law enforcement uh, officials, they benefit. Uh, they can always hire people. It's one of the few industries that are that's always hiring. Uh, prison industry benefits. They keep their beds full. Uh, the uh, businesses surrounding the prisons, hotels, restaurants, uh, your loved ones have to, the, the prisoners' loved ones have to go and frequent the hotels and the restaurants. They benefit. Uh, the people who do urinalysis, uh, testing of your urine for drugs, they benefit. Politicians benefit because they can say, oh, we're going to get drugs off the street. We're going to put more cops on the street. 
uh, and they look like they're a hero. They're saving your community. Uh, so they benefit. The media benefits because they could have bad TV about awful drugs and awful drug dealers and people tune in for the drama. They benefit. Uh, the people in the media, they can write these awful stories about drugs that are not represented, but they, they are filled with drama. And so people read them. Uh, so all of these people are benefiting. Medicine benefits. Uh, scientists, I benefited. My grants were predicated on talking about the horrors of drugs. I got million dollar grants uh, to investigate the horrors of drugs. Uh, we all benefit. I wouldn't be here uh, talking to you maybe if it wasn't for the war on drugs. I, I mean, I think it's, it's an astute point you're making, which is, I guess, one, uh, it, it's turned this into an industry for all of the stakeholders, from the journalists to the to the cops, to the, the for-profit um, prisons. Um, the, the other astute point I think you're making is, is something that's near and dear to my heart, which is that... Um, you know, I do something totally different. I study cancer drugs, but I'm, uh, I think many would think of me as an outsider and someone critical of the status quo. And I always joke that I'm also a beneficiary of the status quo because I'm a critic of the status quo, right? And so yeah. you point to, right? So, so we're beneficiaries of the status quo yeah. because we're critics yeah. of the status quo. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if you might um, talk about, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, the, the issue of moralizing and, and, and moralization um, and maybe even the neuroscience of moralization because, um, uh, I guess I'm not an expert on this topic, but I'll, I'll take a stab. Um, I, I, I increasingly see a social media um, that's interested in judging other people. And here's what I mean. I, I guess I'd say um, there are real structural problems in our society. And I think about the kid born today who's born in disadvantaged circumstances. They may be a minority. They may be a black kid born in a poor household. Um, they may be just a poor white kid born in the South. They may be somebody who's born in a disadvantaged circumstance. And I think um, if you're somebody who wants to make the world better, is your action going to make it better for that kid who's born today? And sometimes I go and I look on Twitter or Facebook, or I read the newspaper and I see the issues that many activists are spending their time on, which to me appears as if they're finding somebody who said something that they didn't quite like how it was said and they're getting that person and making that person pay the price. And I think to myself that that doesn't help this kid. This kid who's born today doesn't help that kid. Um, and it's become a sort of, I mean, almost a pastime for people to, to engage in that. Um, it's another way to kind of exercise that moralizing instinct. Um, so so is, there a, is there a neuroscience of what makes us seek to impose our sense of virtue on others? I, it, you strike me as the kind of person who, um, you, you don't have much of that in your body. I mean, you want to persuade people of your reason, but you don't want me to do what you do because you're arguing it's a virtuous, you know, you want to use reason to change my mind, not morality. Um, is, is there a different way in which people are wired that makes them more inclined for one or the other type of type of argument? If, if there sense. is, if there is, I'm not aware of. Okay. It. I, I think we can just look at people's behaviors and we can look at the incentives uh, under which they are operating. Um, as you point out, the social media thing, there are huge incentives to get people to follow you or to increase your brand. Uh, and so those incentives, if we just tweak those incentives, we can change people's behavior. Um, and so if we made it uh, such that uh, you were rewarded for accuracy, 
and not for uh, sensationalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have changed the incentives and now you will change the behavior. But at the moment, uh, it's such that uh, for Twitter and social media and all the rest of these social media platforms, uh, it's about how many followers you have. And since that's the case, uh, you can purchase followers. And so uh, that means that it doesn't really matter what you say. The only thing that matters is the the number of followers that you have. If you have uh, a lot of followers, uh, you can say anything. It doesn't matter. But we can change the behavior by simply making sure that all the followers are are uh, verified. If they're all verified, the behavior will change. It will change. And, and so um, without uh, looking at the, the incentives, the condition, and trying to change behavior, then you miss the point. And that's what we do oftentimes in public policy in the United States. Uh, we miss the point always. Uh, why do those people behave like this? What's wrong with them? Instead of asking what's wrong with them, we ask about the incentives under which they are operating. Dr. Hart, does does um, it's such a wise point? I mean, you're I I think you're 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 so right um, in the sense that um, that if you want to fix problems, you have to make it uh, uh, you have to incentivize people to do the right thing. You know, you you can't appeal to any sort of higher higher sense there. Um, and and you're right, we've incentivized the creation of these problems, as you described with the drug industry. I, I wonder if I might push the analogy a little bit more. Um, do you think we're addicted to these? In the same way, I'm showing my phone. Um, in the same way, we can be addicted to substances, and 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 just as you talked about the way that you would reform our use of substances is all these checks and balances in a system, so we don't you know overdose. There are many people who are, I think, addicted to their phones. I see it because I see them looking at their damn phones all the time. The way we used to see people smoking, going out for a smoke. So I guess one question is. Do addictions displace each other? Like if I, can I, um, because we don't smoke that much as we used to, are we more susceptible to being addicted to the phone? That's, I don't know the answer. That's my question. And then the next question is, um, just like um, there many people can use the phone in a balance and still have a very productive life. You you know, you point out many people can use recreation drugs, have a very productive life, but there are few people who it becomes an obsession. Um, so ought we think about the same kind of policy prescriptions um, for our addiction to technology? I mean, if you would say that it, it's, an, it's a dopamine addiction in the same way. I, I would never call anything a dopamine addiction. Okay. That's like a, um, that's a bastardizing of uh, the brain and uh, okay. brain knowledge. And that I, I, I rail against that in the book a little bit. Um, when I think about uh, phones and certainly people can be addicted to their phone. It, when I say addiction, I mean that it can cause disruptions in their functioning. Um, they are failing to meet obligations. That's what I mean. And they are distressed by it. Uh, I think about work. I think about my own work, particularly when I was serving as chair. Um, that was far more detrimental to my family, uh-huh. my health, uh, far more detrimental to, than my drug use ever was uh, because um, uh, trying to lead people who uh were, you know, they misbehave. Uh, and it caused me a lot of stress. And I uh, worked uh, uh, too many hours in a day trying to solve these problems. Um, my health uh, was probably at one of his lowest points when I was chair. Um, uh, and so 
you certainly can be addicted to these activities other than uh, a substance. Um, and it's important for us to recognize when these things are uh, destructive. And, uh, and it's an appropriate response to be distressed by, whether it's a drug or whether it's work. It's, a, it's an appropriate uh, response to be distressed when they are disrupting uh, your function. And do you think, I mean, do you think, or is there any evidence that one displaces the other so that, um, yeah. or, for, or for instance, when you were a chair and you're dealing with the stress of the chair, um, does that make you seek out um, other things more than you would if your life is in a different sort of space? Um, well, it, it gave me less time to seek out other things. So <laughs> okay. one sure. of the things about addictions, in, uh, one of the symptoms is that you spend a great deal of time uh, engaged in the activity, recovering from the activity or, or trying to uh, get to participate in the activity. Um, and so it limits uh, my focus and my time. So like when I was chair, uh, like one of the things I like to do is I, I love to go see live comedy. Um, um, those kind of things, they all plummeted. I didn't, I wasn't going to live shows. I wasn't traveling. I wasn't doing any of those things that I usually like to do because all of my time was being spent in this God awful activity. <laughs> So funny you say that because you know I I tell people um, uh, I, I I never want to be a leader uh, because I think uh, it, it, it it's a rope with a noose at both ends and it can drag you down uh, just like you think you have some control you often are the are the are the one paying the price and um, it's just not my uh, not my joy in life not what I'm interested in um, so I wonder if I might you know our time is is running out but um, I wonder if I might ask you this question most of the people listening to this are going to be medical doctors of some stripe. Um, they're people who see patients. Um, I wonder uh, what you might say as to, you know, what are the, what are the lessons that, that, that you have reached um, ab about the use of substances that are most applicable for the person out there who, who is a doctor, who's gonna be um, either thinking about these substances as um, potentially ways to make people better with certain, who are facing certain challenges, you know, as using them as therapies. Um, uh, also who may be dealing with, um, you know, some of the consequences of it. How, how, what, would you, what would you tell that audience? What would you advise them? Uh, if you are a treating physician or you're dealing with people who may be using substances, whether it's a, a substance use disorder or whether it's just someone using without a problem, it's important for the treating physician to look beyond the drug itself. If you're stuck with the drug, if someone says, yeah, I smoke crack cocaine or yeah, I use heroin, look beyond the drug and try to see whether or not uh, this person's life is being disrupted as a result of the mm. drug use. Or if it's not, uh, figure out what the real problems are. Try to find out uh, uh, if this person is having a problem. Try and find out why the person's having a problem. Don't just stop with the drug. Because if you just stop at the drug, you're not doing them any favor. Mm. Uh, because um, drug addiction in itself almost has nothing to do with the drug. It has so much to do with co-occurring co psychiatric illnesses, 
undertreated pain, uh, unrealistic expectations heaped on somebody, um, uh, the people in the Rust Belt who lost those good middle-class paying jobs and now they are no one in their community when they used to be someone. I mean, there are all kinds of other issues that are going on that are far more important than the drug itself. And so as the treating physician, uh, you would do us all a service uh, by looking beyond the drug itself. That's well put. Um, I said last question, but I had what we, you know, what you said made me think of one thing. So I'm going to pick your brain, and then and then I know your time is up. Um, the 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 last thing I want to pick your brain on is, um, you know, you, you've probably been following along that there is in among doctor prescribing, there's the opioid epidemic. I.e., um, we were heavily incentivized by Purdue Pharmaceuticals, many other companies, to prescribe opioids, even for conditions that you might have gotten away with giving somebody a, a hefty dose of Advil, um, and and you didn't need. Need to do it. Um, now we are, are, are paying the, uh, the pendulum has swung and we're very conscious of that. And we're, we're, we're doing all these things to try to ameliorate. Um, one of my worries as a, as a cancer doctor is that sometimes I worry that pendulums swing a little too fast. And so I've seen some patients um, who are newly diagnosed with cancer. The cancer is eroding their bone and the doctor gave him Tylenol. And I said, give that man an opiate. I mean, this person, this is when you do give it. You do give it here because this person's in pain. Um, so I wonder, um, I don't know, how do you, uh, I wonder if you have any thoughts on, on this, this whole epiphenomenon of um, the medical profession being, I think, to some degree bamboozled by the industry to prescribe their products. Uh, and then now this countercurrent where um, maybe we're pushing against it. Yeah. Uh, so the initial sort of uh, uh, push to prescribe certain opioids by the push by the pharmaceutical companies well, uh, uh, companies like Purdue, they're paying the price. And so that was wrong, clearly. Uh, and so that's fine. As humans, we make mistakes. Uh, and then it's incumbent upon us to address it. So we, we're doing that the best we, at best we can. But the concern is that this pendulum has not only swung so fast, but it's swung too far, such that there are pain patients. I get no less than... 10 emails a week of pain patients telling me about how they were cut off. Um, not young people. I'm talking about people who are 70, 80 years old after years of being maintained successfully on some opioid. Now they are being tapered off and eventually cut off in some cases because of our concern. Uh, that is, uh, that's heartbreaking. I mean, that's just flat out wrong. And I wish uh, the medical profession, particularly those in the business of treating pain, I wish they would come out and have some sort of major pushback on this so they can uh, advocate on behalf of their patients. You know, just a personal anecdote. Uh, my son recently had some dental issue, some pain that required some surgery. Uh, and uh, my wife took him to have this emergency surgery. Uh, and the physician or the dentist sent him out with a prescription for Advil, basically. Uh, and my wife looked at the prescription and she was like, what the, what's going on here? Uh, so yeah, she yeah, went yeah. back in and <laughs> 
she went back in and used her white privilege to be like, because my son looks like me. She went back in and used her white privilege and say, no, this is not going down this way. This is how. And the guy, he gave the prescri a prescription for an opioid to my kid, but only after his white yeah. mom went in to advocate for him. Uh, you know, otherwise it would not have happened. I, I, I think that that's a, you know, a very telling example. And I think, you know, um, I think you're right. I mean, I think you're right that the pendulum has swung too far. I see it every day. And I, uh, and I think that it's related to the thing that you were talking about earlier, which is that um, we've confused our moral um, feelings towards Purdue Pharmaceuticals with our moral feelings towards people, some of whom have been stably maintained, as you point out, on pain medicine, functionally a set amount of pain medicine, not escalating stably for a decade. And we've transferred a little bit of our sentiment from one to the other and it's, and it's clouding our vision. Uh, so I hope yeah. people heed your advice. Um, Dr. Hart, it's been a pleasure, a pleasure to talk to you. Um, you know, I, I, I think you're a fascinating thinker um, and, and you're doing super interesting work. Um, I'm a big fan of hearing you um, and thank you so much for doing this. It's really a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I, I really appreciate uh, these kind of conversations. Um, uh, it, it, right now, the time is it's crazy, uh, but I, I hope to come back where we can sit down even more and be more relaxed because this really helps me. So thank you. Oh, thank you. And so the book is Drug Use for Grownups. People should pick up a copy. It's terrific. Carl Hart, thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to season three of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.